Ringer Dish is the place for all things celebrity, from major celebrity moments like the Met Gala and the Oscars, to the weird habits of the stars you love, to refreshers on the biggest tabloid stories from the last 20 years, Ringer Dish has all the vital details. On Tuesdays, catch Jam Session with Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins for Royal Family Rumors, Celebrity Real Estate, and Industry Analysis. And on Fridays, listen to Tea Time with me, Kate, and Amelia for lightning fast coverage on pressing celebrity news and gossip. Check out Ringer Dish on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. David, can we spend a few minutes talking about the new gawker? Yes. It's just the new gawker, right? Not the new, new gawker. This is just 2.0. There wasn't a zombie gawker in there somewhere that I missed. No, there was a zombie gawker. Wait, there was? Wasn't didn't it relaunch like two or three years ago? To, and it had and it published like two pieces, or did it yeah, never yeah. actually relaunch? See, I was I was just wondering, am I misremembering zombie? Am I conflating zombie Deadspin with zombie Gawker? No, I think there. I mean, it wasn't zombie Gawker because it was the same owner that owns it now. But it was sort of a very. It was. It, it, I don't think there was any any of the old Gawker staff or much of its DNA. It was more of just like like you know they took Gawker's IP and. and and did Gawker in space. So this is an interesting relaunch because we have had some zombies like mm-hmm. Deadspin, which is the name, but not the pirate spirit of the original. Mm-hmm. In this case, Leah Finnegan, who was a big editor at old Gawker, is running new Gawker. Mm-hmm. So it's coming back and it can't be what it was because nothing is what it was at a moment in time, moment in media time. But it is trying to recapture and rechannel some of the spirit of old Gawker. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I mean, and, and like you said, Leah Finnegan was a part of the old Gawker. I think there's some more people involved who are part of the old Gawker, and uh, there's, I mean, I think a couple of things have happened. I mean, obviously, the, there's zombie Deadspin, and there's the Defector, right? I mean, a lot of the, the, the a lot of the you know the, the 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 people that were involved in Gawker and, and Gawker affiliated publications then have sort of found a new outlet, right? Um, but there's still a giant hole in our consciousness where Gawker used to be, right? I mean, there there's a I think is it's weird. There's so many sites that I check that I read every single day at some point in my life that either they went out of business or they went behind a paywall or, you know, whatever happened. And, and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to replace that. And then 15 minutes later, I, you know, an angel came down and removed it from my bookmarks list. And I never thought about it again. (laughs) Gawker is not that way. You know, Gawker is both because of the, I mean, you know, you read articles about the new Gawker, you're going to hear a lot of words repeat voice, spirit, uh, Mm -hmm. ethos, because of all those things of the old Gawker. I mean, it, it, it had a very, specific personality and probably for all the reasons that it was despised in some quarters it's been impossible to reproduce um and it's it's been really missed i love the day one stunt where they reached out to people in the gawker expanded universe like tina brown mm-hmm. and lena dunham and glenn greenwald and asked them what they thought about gawker mm-hmm. coming back that was a really also the Philly fanatic was in that roll call. That was an appropriately uh, gawker thing to do. Also, like the look of the website. I wonder yeah. if you had thoughts on this as an art guy. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of really bigger type than we're used to. It almost reminds me of when you go to the bistro and you get the long menu that has lots of like pictures and type on it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, and I and I mean that in, in compliment. It's sort of like reading one of those menus. The sort of look of the site. Yeah, it's really well designed. You know, I mean, there was a there was a period in, well, Gawker is a, is probably emblematic of this, but a lot of the sites that were really big at, at over that sort of decade got redesigned. It seemed like every year, right? I mean, it was we probably talked about this before, but I feel like, you know, there was a period where the you know Slate dot com redesign was you know, always get a New York Times write-up, you know? And for that reason, I'm sure it kept on going. But it led to people sort of, they every time a website was redesigned, it was universally despised, the redesign. But mm-hmm. it did it did create an environment in which we were sort of constantly trying to reimagine what interactivity on the internet was supposed to feel like and look like. Um, there's been a lot of sameness for a long time. And I think that Gawker is, you know, Gawker, it's a little bit of, an old magazine aesthetic. It's a little bit of a new, not new magazine, but it's a little bit of like the aesthetic of a, you know, one of those really kind of self-important magazines that only exist in, you know, Brooklyn boutique newsstands, you know, with like really fancy paper, you know I mean? But, but there's definitely like a strong design aesthetic that's still really, and everything's still really accessible. Um, I, I think it looks great. And I think it's, I think it's, um, it's a new, it's a nice way to accent like I talked before, like I mentioned before, the old Gawker spirit, because Gawker was sort of always kind of half zine and half, you know, spy magazine. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of upselling it a little bit just by the look. And, and I think that it gives it a sort of, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's marketing, but it gives it a sort of, you know, if not urgency, then, then it, you know, it brings another level of interest to it. Coming up on today's show, Leon Nafok, the host of the Fiasco podcast, stops by. He's got a new season about the 2012 attacks in Benghazi, Libya, what happened before, what happened after. How do you make a long-form podcast? He tells us. All that more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with Erica Cervantes. We are joined, David, today by an old pal. Leon Nafok is the host of the Fiasco podcast. Before that, he hosted Slow Burn over at Slate. He's got a new season of Fiasco out right now about Benghazi. And back in the 2000s, he stood across the room from us at literally dozens, dozens of Paris (laughs) Review parties. Leon, (laughs) welcome to the Press Box. Thank you for having me on. Great to see you both. Let us step back, Leon, first to about 2017, when you did the first season of Slow Burn about the Watergate scandal. What kind of podcast were you trying to create? So this was, you know, in the couple of years after Serial sort of blew the, 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 the roof off of what a podcast could be and how much of an audience a podcast could reach. Um, and so I was really, you know, eager to, to make something that was uh, journalistic, uh, as well as sound rich, you know, something where you were hearing not just one person telling a story or, you know, an interviewer sort of talking to an expert um, in a conversational mode, but rather like a documentary style narrative series where, you know, you have real characters, you have a real story arc and, you know, there are cliffhangers and archival footage and music and, you know, something that sounds uh, meticulously put together, um, and, and is <laughs> meticulously put together. So that's what we were going for with, with slow burn. I mean, I think the, the, the animating idea was whether Watergate living, whether living through Watergate felt, um, in any way similar to 
what it fe- what was feeling like at that point to live through Trump and the Mueller investigation. And then uh, after you did that, you struck out on your own, which I remember at the time seemed like an incredibly bold move. Um, you know, you 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 launched prologue projects and and a new podcast called Fiasco, which had a sort of the the way that you just described slow burn, there's obviously a lot of kind of a spiritual connectivity there. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. Was it was it did it feel did it how crazy did it feel to just you know step out and do your own thing? No one really, I mean, podcasts like you said were some of them were incredibly successful, but there wasn't a track record for you know people starting your own podcast shingle in the way that you were doing. Yeah, I mean, I sort of backed into the you know, starting a business part of it. Um, we, you know, we got this opportunity to to make the show, make a, sh- a show for uh, Luminary, which was just launching at the time, you know, as a sort of Netflix for podcasting subscription service. Um, and they were being really generous about budgets, which is, you know, something that we were kind of angsty about at Slate because we were sort of working on a shoestring on Slow Burn. And so when it, when it became possible, with, you know, thanks to Luminary to sort of hire a full staff and to take a little more time on each season of the show, um, you know, it felt worth, you know, the risk, which was, you know, not just kind of going into the unknown, but also turning away from something that we had built at, at Slate and had obviously, you know, built a big audience for. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty confident about it editorially. You know, I sort of was able to bring the core team uh, with me, you know, minus the the editors, including our mutual pal, uh, Josh Levine, who uh, I was very sad not to get to work with anymore. Um but you know, it felt like we had the DNA of of the show we wanted to make in our heads, um, and uh, you know, we we knew that there were a bunch of other political stories that we wanted to cover um, in our in you know in the in the mode that we had you know created at, at Slowburn. What kind of topics, uh, Leon, work for these shows? So, it needs to be something that can a sustain listener interest over a number of episodes. You know, like we we did six episodes on on the Bush v. Gore election, and then just now we did six seasons on Benghazi. You know, both of those could have been longer. Um, you know, they, they could have been eight or ten episodes. We had to leave a bunch of like subplots on the table um, in order to fit them into six. But it also felt like we're not going to be able to get anyone to listen to more than six. Uh, you know, hour long episodes about this this topic. I mean, I think Benghazi especially. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what you guys' first reaction is when you hear that word. Like, my assumption going into this project was that for a lot of listeners, Benghazi was going to be a kind of um, unappetizing subject, right? It's like something people remember as this kind of nuisance and this, you know, bullshit machine, right? That 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 um, no one was like particularly eager to to revisit. But our our, our gamble was that you know each of these stories that really take you know captures the country's imagination for better or for worse. Um, has a lot of stuff under the hood that you can. Or I'm, actually, I was look, I, re, I was reaching for a different metaphor. I'm, re, I'm reaching for the for the rock metaphor, where you pick up the rock and you see what's underneath. We we felt <laughs> like there was a lot under the rock with 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 um with Benghazi, and I think like what do you need under the rock? You need like you need to be able to 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 divide the story into into chunks that 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 have sort of coherent edges, right? You want listeners to feel uh, anxious to hear the next one. Um, you need stories where there's a lot of characters, people who are alive and willing to talk to you. You need a story where there's archival footage for you to to, to use um, to sort of illustrate your points. Um, and it just needs to be like complicated enough. You know, it needs to be like not not just in terms of the plot, um, though that helps too, but in terms of like the moral questions that are being raised. Like you don't want to tell an obvious story where it's clear who the sort of good guys are and the bad guys are. Um, you want a story that has sort of room for gray area. 
I mean, one thing that that occurs to me when I look back over sort of the the different subjects you've covered is a lot of them are seem seem to be sort of hiding in plain sight, right? I mean, th- these are these are stories that that you're almost. I mean, I, there's a, you know there's a lot of newness to the form, I guess. But the, but Benghazi, I think more than anything else, you're just like, yeah, of course. Why like why do we <laughs> not know more about this story? Is there is there a you know, you just described what works, but is there is there a way that you go about like identifying them? I mean, is it is it ju- is it is is one controversy better than another controversy? I mean, I think the 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 ones that um, resonate the most are the ones where your listeners have some semblance of a of a of of, of understanding about what happened, um, but not so much that they don't that there's not room to correct their misimpressions or to deepen their understanding, like. I think Benghazi was this again, just like this word that 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 people associate with conspiracy theory. They associate it with like partisan politics. But if you ask someone to like a tell you what happened during the attack, um, they probably won't be able to tell you. Maybe they've seen Thirteen Hours. They could tell you a version of what happened if they if if they saw that movie. Um, but in terms of like who the four guys were who were killed and um, you know what the accusations were that were being made against the Obama administration, I think most people would not be able to come up with an answer. Um, and like, I think as time passes, you know, you know, it's not been that long since Benghazi. It's the most recent story we've covered by far. Um, I think uh, a lot gets forgotten, right? And and I think also like decontextualized. Like I think most people probably don't remember that ben- the Benghazi attack happened like on the eve of the 2012 election and that it was a major, you know, plot point in the, in the Romney-Obama race. Um, and so I think like putting putting these stories back in their place and kind of, you know, helping people connect the dots in their head. Like they might, they might remember the 2012 election. They might remember Benghazi, but they don't remember that they went together, that they, that, that, that Benghazi was this pivotal attack, you know, uh, this, you know, it's a pivotal weapon that, that the Romney campaign tried to wield against Obama, you know, the night of the attack. In fact, you know, I was sort of astonished to realize that, uh, the Romney campaign sent out a press release, uh, attacking Obama, for their for 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 its response to the attack before the attack was even over, right? Like the attack again. This is one of these things that I didn't necessarily appreciate before starting to work on this. The attack was really two attacks. Um, there was an earlier one at the diplomatic compound where Ambassador Chris Stevens uh, was staying, um, and there was a separate one, you know, hours and hours later uh, on the CIA compound nearby. Um, and, you know, I think uh, the Romney campaign put out a press release before that second part of the attack had even happened. And so it just kind of goes to show you, like, how quickly this thing was politicized and how um, how eager Republicans were to take any opportunity to, um, you know, make the argument the Obama administration was, if not soft on terror, then like incompetent on terror, um, which is what they thought this was. So Romney in the 2012 election would use the Obama administration's response against Obama. And then yeah. the Obama campaign would use that press release <laughs> you mentioned, and I remember this from, from the debates and otherwise, against yeah. the Romney campaign as a weapon. Yeah. I think the thing that people might remember is is this debate over whether Obama had uh, used you know the word terrorism to describe the attack. Because one of the big uh, sort of controversies early on was uh, that the Obama administration initially portrayed the attack as a protest gone wrong. There had been uh, a bunch of protests around the Arab world in response to this like very weird low-budget video called Innocence of Muslims. Do you guys remember that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was like 
it was the latest in a string of, you know, blasphemous, you know, free speech kind of hardline activism, you know, trying to provoke Muslims by using, you know, depictions of Muhammad. And so this video was uploaded to YouTube and then it made its way to Egyptian television when it was translated um, into Arabic. And that inspired this pretty intense protest in Cairo um, against the American embassy. And the American embassy in Cairo put out a statement um, basically saying that they, you know, that they condemned the video, that, that this was, that they're all for free speech, but like, this video was 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 wrong, um, and so they distanced themselves from it. But uh, that was before the Benghazi attack happened, and then after the Benghazi attack happened, like later that night, um, it looked like if you if you sort of like smeared or blurred the the timeline, that the Obama administration's first reaction to these attacks, to this you know this attack or these attacks, was sort of you know no one was really making distinctions. That it looked like the first reaction was to apologize, you know, for the video. Um, and in fact, like that apology, such as it was, came hours before the Benghazi attack even happened. And so it was interesting, like after the attack, the, the Republican criticism of the Obama administration was that they were falsely pretending that these that this video was in any way connected to what happened in Benghazi. But as I realized, like it was the Romney campaign that did that first by conflating the, you know, the Cairo embassy's statement about the Cairo protests, which were peaceful, um, with the uh, with the administration's response to the attack, which hadn't happened yet, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> the story is very confusing, though. It's a, it's a much more obviously. You have six episodes, and you could have done more. I mean, it's a big story that we've sort of, you know, stored away in a little jar on the shelf since well, since some point in the past, at least since Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Um, it, it, did you find, how did people react when you told them you were going to do a podcast about Benghazi, both in-house and in the world? Because it seems like as necessary as this sort of is, and interesting in point of view, it's obviously like one of the most politicized words of, you know, recent memory. Yeah. I I mean, I, our, our, our goal with the show was to sort of, you know, depoliticize it as much as we could uh, and kind of restore some context to the word. Um, I think like, I don't want to say most people don't even realize Benghazi is the name of a city, but like that's not the first thing probably most Americans think of. They don't realize it's a city in Libya that had had its own history, and you know, in, or in order to understand why that attack happened and why circumstances were such that there were even American diplomats there at all, um, it requires you to go to kind of go back and like tell the story of Libya uh, and American Libyan relations going back to you know the rise of Muammar Gaddafi. Um, who is a character in the podcast, you know, as someone who ruled over Libya with an iron fist. And, you know, there's a lot of famous anecdotes about how eccentric he was, but he was also extremely brutal. Um, you know, we started the series uh, in episode one with the story of what's known as the Abu Salim prison massacre, which was uh, an incident in 1996 when uh, Gaddafi's regime ordered the you know, killing of some 1,200 prisoners in this in this prison uh, in in Tripoli in Libya, um, and as it turned out, like one of the attackers, or actually multiple attackers who were involved in 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 the attack in 2012, had served time in this prison under Gaddafi. They had you know come up. Uh, they they had started battalions and militias during the, the Libyan Revolution uh, as part of the Arab Spring, and. Were, were involved in in the rebel coalition, but then after Gaddafi was was ousted and killed, 
uh, and it was time to create a new government, you know, that rebel coalition splintered. And one of those splinters was this like coalition of, um, or rather this, this, you know, collection of, of radical militias that were generally like Islamist in, in, in their political orientation. Um, and so, so, you know, I think when we realized that the story of that, of the, of the attack and the politics around the attack, um, actually needed this background, we got much more excited about it because it felt like, okay, we can, we don't have to spend six episodes in this swamp. We can kind of widen the lens, especially in the first half of the series, um, and really try to explain, um, and not just explain, you know, I always hate that word because it sounds so boring, but like tell the story of, of this strange relationship that America has had with Libya. You know, one thing I didn't remember, uh, is that during the Bush administration after 9-11, um, the U.S. kind of opened the door to a to a reconciliation with with Gaddafi. You know, and this was a guy who, not so long you know ago, had been number one public enemy, like the face of international terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and after nine eleven, because Gaddafi sort of shared some enemies with the U.S. in the in the war on terror, he became our ally. Um, and that is you know an, an incredibly important chapter of the story that you need to understand in order to to, to grasp why the attack happened when it did. All right, David, in just a second, we'll ask Leon Nafok about what kind of sound he gets on the Fiasco podcast. But first, let us break for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. David, sad news for children and grown up children everywhere. The beloved cartoon Arthur has reportedly been canceled. Ooh. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Arthur wasn't canceled. It's called accountability and it's necessary. <laughs> Thanks to our pal, Derek Burke. Uh, David, in a particularly trolly piece of speech making, Texas Senator Ted Cruz asked, has there ever been an institution in American public life that has more discredited itself more rapidly than the CDC? It was an overworked <laughs> Twitter joke to write, um, um, the Republican Party, maybe? <laughs> Thanks to Joel Landau and Aaron Aaron Warenko for that. Sorry, Aaron. And finally, David, during Thursday's NBA draft, the Los Angeles Clippers traded for a player named Brandon Boston. Brandon Boston <laughs> resulted in kind of a funny tweet from ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. Quote, Clippers are acquiring Boston in a deal per source. Would you like to hear some of the funniest responses to that tweet? Yes, please. Uh, Jerry West does it again. Uh Wow, Kawhi's demands are out of control. This ruins an otherwise fantastic summer for Ben Affleck. And finally, even the Clippers don't deserve this. Thanks to Alex (laughs) Ungerman and Scott Tobias. If you thought America could somehow get even more Boston than it already has, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. You mentioned, Leon, wanting to create a sound-rich podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, like a good child of the 80s, my ears perked up as soon as I heard Barbara Walters interviewing Gaddafi, which yeah. I feel was, <laughs> I feel is that, that shot of them, uh, you know, talking to each other was something that just ran again and again, uh, when we were kids, how do you go about creating a sound rich podcast using that archival sound without being the obligatory? And now here's some archival sound from 1980, whatever. You mean in terms of like the, the like fair use of it all? No, like, just the strategy, I would say more of just aesthetically oh, I see. weaving it all together. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we identify what people are hearing when it's crucial to understand, like, to know, like, oh, it was on this network or it was this interviewer. I think, like, the Barbara Walters clip, we might not even identify 
um, as being her. I mean, her voice is recognizable. You don't really need to. But um, I think the moment you're talking about is when she says, you know, people call you a madman. You know that, right? He's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he like laughs devilishly. Um, you know, I think a lot of times archival footage can, you know, serve the purpose of just conjuring the moment, especially, you know, I think this is less true about a season like the one we just finished on Benghazi. It's more true about something like Iran-Contra um, or Watergate, you know, where where the sound of TV news and radio news is so different. Um, it just instantly takes you back, like just the tone of the recording. Like, you know exactly what era you're in when you hear it. Um, I think archival can be really useful there. I think there's like a tendency sometimes to, you know, one that we avoid, I, I, I think, um, to just sort of use archive as, as water, as sort of like wallpaper, you know, like mm -hmm. you're, or even just like as a, you know how sometimes when you're texting with someone uh, and like you'll you'll say, hey, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to the grocery store. And then like someone will just, because they don't have anything else to say, they'll send you like an emoji of a grocery store. <laughs> you know, does that ever happen? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> it's like you don't want that. You don't want you don't want your archive to just like be the grocery store emoji. Um, you want it to like serve a purpose and to like kind of give people, um, you know, a, a sense of of being on the receiving end of that broadcast in the you know at the time. Like you want it, you want it to feel almost like time travel. You know, and I think um, sometimes sometimes archive gets sort of deployed in a more facile way where you know it's almost just like proof that you aren't lying, right? Like news, news networks did this. And then you like hear a bunch of clips of news networks doing that, right? Um, I think we mostly try to stay away from kind of that, uh, what do you call it? Like, I don't know, paint by numbers approach or, or just like, yeah, we'll call it the emoji approach. Yeah. It sounds, it's a little bit like the strategy of using quotes in a piece or an exactly, example exactly. in a piece. Yes. You want it to push forward. You want it to add, as you say, atmosphere or something without just saying, and now, now time for a quote after three paragraphs yeah, without one. Yeah. Did you find yourself, uh, I mean, related question, do you find yourself like, you know, this wasn't the first podcast to do this. And obviously like radio, it existed for a million years before. And, and you talked about, you know, documentary and stuff, but coming from a career as a writer, do you find yourself sort of like creating a whole new vocabulary to discuss, to have these sort of conversations? I mean, you're using a, almost probably all of the skills that you already had, but, but you are. I can just imagine, I mean, I know the conversations that we have when we talk about podcasts and you kind of stumble over words, right? It's like, I want to do like that podcast, but different and better, you know, mm -hmm. like you do, you, do you find, does the kind of creative side come with a whole new set of challenges and, and a different mindset or is it the same thing? No, it's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that like most of what I learned how to do as a print reporter I'm using now. Um, but there are a bunch of new things that I've learned how to do, you know, including like how I approach interviews. You know, I used to, you used to not worry about like how someone sounds when they said something, you know, if they stumbled over a word or if they like interrupted themselves in the middle of a sentence or a thought, like, you know, you could use an ellipsis or whatever. And and sometimes when you, when you're doing an interview for, for a podcast, like you hear someone say the thing you want them to hear them say, but you can tell in the moment that they like screwed it up somehow. And so you, sometimes like I'll ask someone to repeat themselves or tell the story again, you know, sometimes someone will tell a story way too long, you know, and you know, sometimes instead of kind of deciding, well, we'll fix that in post by editing it down, I, I ask them to just like tell it again faster, you know? Mm -hmm. um, we've had to do a couple interviews over uh, during COVID because of like various technical snafus that we've encountered, um, which is always like really difficult to to learn that you have to, you know, you have to reach back out to someone and say, hey, I, you know, we talked to you for an hour, but actually we need to talk to you for another hour about all the same <laughs> stuff. Really sucks. But like, I find that the second interview is always better. And part of it is like, because it gives you more, um, 
you know, you can kind of like, you kind of know how the person talks already and maybe you know the boring parts to not revisit. Um, I guess that's all kind of the same as if you were doing for print. But in terms of like new vocabulary or new concepts, like I'm definitely thinking a lot more about stripping stories down to their to their most necessary elements like like what i was telling you before about the about the romney campaign's press release and like the timing of it relative to like the cairo statement and all that like i have a feeling that some of the listeners that heard that or will will be hearing that will be lost and i think when i'm not speaking extemporaneously and we are you know sort of meticulously drafting these paragraphs and uh over you know over a period of months like we try to tell the story as simply as we can with as few you know, proper nouns as possible with, with like the right number of, you know, dates where people can kind of know ambiently, like when things are taking place. Um, cause I think with podcasts, you gotta have to assume that people are doing other stuff while they're listening to them. And that's, I think part of the reason why they're popular because you can take them in when you're doing other stuff in a way that you can't with, you know, visual journalism or, or print. Um, but at the same time, you means you're competing with, for people's attention, right? Even, even though they are choosing to listen to you. And so, you know, you have to kind of like have a feel for like what to repeat more than once. You know, we always like have debates over, you know, do we need to re-ID this person or is their voice like sufficiently recognizable that we don't need to say, oh, by the way, this is like, you know, Brian Curtis again speaking. Um, and it's like a lot of mechanical little tools like that that I've picked up, you know, shorter sentences, like that's a really simple one, but important one, like you just can't have a bunch of subordinate clauses in a sentence on audio because people's ear will just like lose the thread. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't think that the, the, the shift is as radical as, as I might've expected, or as people might expect who work in print and are, are, are interested in trying podcasting, but think they can't. You say in the first episode that Benghazi and the ensuing scandal changed history. Remind us or tell us if we don't know how <laughs> Benghazi changed history. So my, you know, my assessment of it, having finished the series now is that this really was, uh, if not a, a turning point, um, which is a phrase I try to use uh, judiciously, at least like a milestone, a major milestone in sort of the evolution of the Republican Party. Because I think Benghazi was, you know, just a, a really sort of huge, hugely important proof of concept for the Fox News outrage machine, um, which we discuss in, in, in one of our episodes with, you know, with an interview with uh, Alice Camerata, who left Fox News, I think in 2014, and spoke to us very candidly about like how the Fox News outrage cycle was engineered um, and how she, you know, was a mouthpiece for it until she quit. Um, and so in looking back on it, I think with with the way Benghazi was played on Fox News, um, the way it was used by politicians in Congress, um, it really just sort of like demonstrated how easy it is to just like filibuster your way to a scandal. Um, I think like one big question I had kind of going into a production on the final episode was like, wait, what exactly was the like theory of the case um, being presented by people who were criticizing the Obama administration? Um, and I you know, didn't have that question because I thought the Obama administration was blameless or anything. I wasn't thinking about that defensively. It was more like, what did all these you know, v- v- various conspiracy theories that were leveled against the administration, what did they add up to? Like, what, were the, what was the underlying premise? Because um, you had like so many different threads being pulled on Fox News and by different congressmen, you know, and it was almost like there were three phases that that the conspiracy theories kind of were, took took root. Um, you know, you had the before the attack where the question was, did the Obama administration screw up by not providing enough security to the to the compound in Benghazi? 
Um, or did they turn down requests for additional security? Um, and then the during was, um, did the military basically like miss an opportunity to rescue the Americans in Benghazi? Um, did they choose not to on orders from Hillary Clinton? Um, and then the after was concerning that the question of the video. You know, did that did the Obama administration lie in in, in telling people that it was about you know that it was a spontaneous reaction uh, in protest of this anti-Muslim video as opposed to a you know orchestrated terrorist attack. Um, and so cons- there were various conspiracy theories that sort of took root in each of those realms. And so the question to, to my mind was like, why, like, what was the, what was the, what was, what did they all have in common? Sort of what was like the, what was the shared premise of all these accusations? And, you know, what I realized and I frankly didn't, didn't appreciate before was that Benghazi was just sort of this perfect weapon for the Republicans to use against Democrats who were already vulnerable for various reasons to charges of, you know, being insufficiently tough on terrorism and tough on Islamic terrorism specifically. You know, it resonated with like the narrative of Obama being a secret Muslim. It narrated, it, it resonated with the narrative of Obama going to the Arab world, you know, to Egypt and, and, and sort of at the beginning of his presidency and saying that, you know, we're going to be different than the last guys. We're not going to be treating the Muslim world as an, as an enemy. Um, and so I think Benghazi, to get back to your question of how it changed history, like it really emboldened, I think, the Republicans to um, use, you know, A, use Fox News. I think Fox News like became um, an instrument uh, of political attack in a way that, it, I mean, it, there had been smaller versions of it before Benghazi, but to the extent, the, the extent to which there were real, real sort of lies, I think, told about what Hillary Clinton did and didn't do during the, the Benghazi attack and afterwards, uh, it was just on a different level. Um, and I think the the sort of bloodlust you saw from especially like the super right wing fringe of the of the GOP, um, it really kind of took over, right? Like in, this, in the final episode of the series, we talk about um, the special select committee um, that was created by John Boehner uh, in 2014 to investigate Benghazi, even though there had already been, I think, six uh, congressional investigations uh, up to that point that had already been, you know, undertaken by different committees. Um, the 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 calls for, for that special select committee uh, were coming from the, like, the fringes of the Republican Party initially. Um, but because Fox News was sort of like amplifying all the fear-mongering and the conspiracy mongering, uh, you know, what you would call like normal you know, country club Republicans started to kind of echo those calls. And John Boehner, who was Speaker of the House at the time, finally, you know, after resisting those calls and and, and recognizing them for, for what they were, which was like a fringe point of view being expressed in extremely sort of like crude ways, um, he kind of gave in and he said, okay, fine, we're going to install, uh, we're going to, we're going to appoint a special select committee. We're going to put Trey Gowdy in charge of it. He was like, you know, one of the kind of standard bearers of the Tea Party. Um, it was really a victory for that part of the party. And I think uh, it's hard when you kind of connect the dots between that and like Donald Trump rising in the GOP primary in 2016 um, and using Benghazi and the email scandal, which came as a direct result of Benghazi uh, against Clinton. You know, I think there's a very straight line there. And while I, again, hesitate to use the word turning point because that sort of implies that things wouldn't have turned out the way they did if not for this event, it was like a very important stop along the way. You use the phrase connecting the dots. I know connecting the dots isn't isn't the same thing as breaking news or uncovering something that that no literally no one knew. But uh, but I feel like there's a real aspect of 
service of service journalism to what you're doing. That's that's. Um, I mean, this the Benghazi the the Benghazi series maybe because it's so recent really feels like I'm learning so much listening to it. And you described a lot of what I'm learning on this show. Um, how do you feel like it's being, is it being covered? Is anything that you're doing being, being covered in the, in the, in the press? I mean, are people treating your, your narrative as a discovery on any level? And how do you feel like in general, um, the sort of, you know, traditional media grapples with America or, you know, listeners like learning things and, 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 and sort of reliving the past through podcasts. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest, like it hasn't gotten the kind of attention that I want so far. I mean, it only just, we only just aired the last episode last week, so it might still be to come, but I mean, it's true that we don't have breaking news in the, in the series. Like, I, I don't think, you know, we've added texture, I think to the story, we've added sort of first person testimony from a lot of really important people, including, um, you know, the, the security, uh, official who, or security agent who was, um, with ambassador Stevens when he was killed, um, he had never spoken to the media before. And so we've definitely added, you know, important material to the record and we've sort of captured stuff that people haven't heard before. Um, I, I don't know. I found it, I found it hard to get journalists interested in the story, um, just from, you know, pitching it around to, to people, um, as something to cover. And I, and I think part of that is because, people don't have an appetite for Benghazi. I think there's like just an allergy that, that, that is just there. Um, that people maybe, maybe six episodes was too many, you know, even if, even if we, um, we thought we were, we were making it shorter than we could have. Um, and the other part, you know, this is not a secret, like we're behind a paywall and I think paywalls are still a really new thing in podcasting. Um, you know, we are available on Apple podcasts now through their new like subscription, uh, platform where people can pay five bucks or whatever it is for, a subscription to the Luminary channel on Apple Podcasts, and people are doing it. But um, and it's and it's easier now to hear the show when it's now that it's not just on the Luminary app, which is how it was for the first three seasons. Um, but it's just true. I mean, there's so many free podcasts that it's it is hard to you know get the same kind of attention um, if you have one that is um, is locked up, you know. And so it's just like it's just a. I think it's a fact of the podcast industry right now that like in order to get the kind of budgets you need to make a show this ambitious and this sound rich um, and this labor intensive, you sort of need to be working with, you know, the the, the, the paywall streamers. Um, and I think that's fine. And I think people will catch up. But yeah, I mean, for now, it's, it's, it's pretty tough sledding out there. Last question for you, Leon. We jokingly mentioned the Paris review party of the mid to late aughts. Yep. This awkward rite of passage for us self-involved <laughs> literary uh, types. <laughs> you told me in an email you went to one the other night. Can you give us a report on the state of the Paris Review Party circuit 2021? <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, it was a party for Christopher Cox and his new book about the deadline effect. Uh, it was pretty small. I mean, it was COVID. You know, COVID protocols were in full effect. You had to show proof of vaccination to get in. Um, there were, you know, there were a lot of the same folks that I remember seeing at at, at the old Paris Review parties, <laughs> but maybe. Maybe um, some of them have moved upstate. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. They, there was still a pool table, but um, I gather um, Emily, the new editor of the Paris Review, is getting rid of the pool table. So, I mean, the other thing to say, right, is that this was a Paris Review party at, a, at an office um, that I think they only moved into relatively recently. So I think, like, when I imagine the Paris Review party, I'm imagining one of that big old loft, what was on White Street? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's not there anymore. So it's different in that respect. They had, um, they had really... Uh, 
they had radishes in the spread that had like no. the, the leaves attached to them. And so I had I this moment where that. I like, I like took a bunch of radishes uh, and I like tore off the, the leaves and I was like about to try to find a trash can. And then Chris started giving a speech and I like stood there with a fistful of radish leaves uh, that I didn't know what to do with for a while. And then I like, and I discarded them in, in some, in some assistance wastebasket. So in our era, people were moving to Brooklyn or Queens and now they're moving upstate. That's the, that's, that's, that's for the sure. news here. That's the takeaway. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that's news to anyone, but yeah, it's, it's definitely happening. <laughs> Leon Nafog, new season of fiasco about Benghazi is out right now. You are hereby encouraged to listen. Leon, thanks so much for coming on the press box. Thank you guys so much. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Friday's headline about Chip Gaines's new book was No Pain, No Gains. Oh, my gosh. Today's headline comes from W. Joel Smith. It's from the New York Times, David. It's a review of the bad movie Jungle Cruise. <laughs> and if this were a different kind of podcast, I'd be asking you right now, now, is The Rock going to make a good movie? <laughs> one of these days it's not already an existing franchise because mm. i've been waiting a few years and there have been a lot of turkeys in there anyway i don't know go rewatch the tooth fairy tell me what you think your keyword here david is amazon amazon because i guess jungle cruise is on the amazon what was the new york times's strained pun headline amazon grime Amazon, mm, uh, you, are, you are on the right track. Amazon slime, Amazon, um, uh, is it Amazon? Um, you're on the doorstep. You're on crime. the bank of the river. Crime. Yeah. yeah so Amazon, Amazon, what, what kind of more, what kind of mortgages were involved in the uh, 2008 financial crisis? Wait, what? Oh, uh, not subprime. Prime, but, uh, yep. Amazon subprime. Amazon subprime. Oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. He is David Shoemaker of Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Friday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>